Noah deserved a glass of wine, don't you think? He'd done a lot in his life. It was high time that Noah could relax and enjoy his rest. That's what Noah's name means, by the way. Noah means rest. And so now, at last, at the end of all things, Noah has his rest. Now, at last, he can enjoy his Sabbath, right? Now, at last, the man whose name means rest can enter it for himself. The floodwaters are subsided. Those waters that had prevailed so mightily over the mountains. His ark had been borne up, but now it had come to rest. That ark that he had labored so long and so hard to build. Now, at, at last... Noah can have his rest. Now, when I say that he may rest, I don't just mean sleep. I mean Noah can rest in the way that God rested after his labors. God didn't go to sleep. God didn't cease to work after he had finished his creation. He ceased, though, to continue that work in the sense of sitting back and enjoying it. I don't mean Noah is it's time for Noah to be inactive. There's still plenty to do. I mean it's time for Noah to have some enjoyment, don't you think? Noah, at last, the great ark builder, should be able to rest, and he should be able to enjoy the fruits of all of his labors. So should everyone who lives to be 600 years old. So should everyone who lives through a flood. So should everyone who builds an ark. So should everyone who endures the mockery and the scorn of the world. Now Noah can come to the final chapter, and it should read like all good stories, and they all lived happily ever after to the end of their days. Today we come to the end. And it ends, or it starts to end anyways, the way that endings should. Noah became a man of the soil, like Adam, and he planted a vineyard. How appropriate. A new Adam and a new crop, grapes, and with the harvest comes the wine press. And when that is all said and done on the, mounts of, on the slopes of Mount Ararat, Noah can look out over the new world and say, it is finished. That's what wine is good for, isn't it? Wine comes at the end of all things, at the end of the harvest, at the end of your labor. Wine is the drink of Sabbath rest. Water, water is for refreshment. Water is for the middle of the day. Water is when you still have work to do. But wine, wine is for when you're done. Wine is for enjoyment. Wine is for festivity. Wine, the scriptures say, is given to make glad the hearts of men. And so Noah has his chateau, doesn't he? He has his chateau there, Chateau Saint Ararat. And there we have our first mention of vineyards and of wine in Scripture, though hardly the last one. When I read this story, I always feel like it's kind of a letdown. Do you get that sense? All of the action is over, the floodwaters and the building of the ark and the excitement of the rainbow, all that's over. And then we get this weird story about a vineyard and wine, but it's the perfect ending, isn't it? This is how all stories should end. The old is washed away. Noah has sent out his raven to eat up any residue of the flesh. He sent out his dove, and the dove came back with the olive branch, the sign of peace. The old is over. All of the violence, all of the death, all of the trouble is in the past. And now, now there is a glass of wine. And so Noah drank. Noah drank. 
And scripture says he became drunk. And I know that drunkenness is sinful, but I find it really hard, don't you, to hold Noah at fault here. Do you really suppose, right, that the first fruits of the new world washed clean was just like any other wine that we could pick up on the shelves today? I suppose that that new wine of the new world was so potent that even just one little sip would knock us on our heels. Noah drank. One glass would have been enough to knock you or me back on our rears, but Noah drank. I find it hard to hold him at fault for that because of what he had been through, too. If ever there was a time to enjoy what God had given, if ever there was a time for festivity and enjoyment, this was the time. The flood is over. The ark is at rest. There's nothing left of that old world. Noah's drunkenness is not the same kind of drunkenness that we encounter. Noah's drunkenness is not the kind of drinking away his sorrows. It is not the kind of drunkenness of a man addicted to a substance and out of control. It is not the mindlessness of one too many drinks because he was caught up in telling tales with the boys. No, this is the new Adam in the new world, and he is at rest and at enjoyment, and so I find it really hard to find fault with Noah. Who knows? Maybe he was even sitting there on the mountain enjoying the view of a particularly beautiful rainbow and pondering all of the covenantal blessings of God. And so he drank, and then he did what you do after you drink. He went in and he slept. But Noah's son... Ham had other ideas, and he certainly is at fault. But here's the weird thing. We we see the fault in Noah. Oh, he got drunk. But we don't see much of a problem with Ham. What's the big deal, Noah? He's just kind of noticing that dad had one too many. Biblical readers, readers of the Bible, often have difficulty with Ham. What is his big problem? So some have suggested that he really did worse, that scripture just hints at what he did to his father, that there was something hidden, something that shouldn't even be mentioned. And maybe that's what it was. He enters into the tent, he sees his father's nakedness, and he decides to make a big joke out of it all. He calls out to his brothers, come here, come here, Shem, look at this old fool, Japheth. And so he dishonors his father. And if that seems like a small thing to you, it's probably because we don't judge sin rightly. To dishonor Noah, to not mock Noah, to scorn Noah, Ham thinks it's all a big game. To make fun of the man who saved his sons, of the father who taught them the ways of righteousness, of the one who brought them through the flood. But Ham forgets all of that, doesn't he? He supposes that it's no big deal what Noah did at all. And so he dishonors him. He mocks him. And he calls out to everyone else to do the same. At last, Noah should be at rest. But here we find this awful tension that we know in our own world too, don't we? The old has been washed away, but the seeds of the old world are carried still inside the ark. As cleansed as the outside world was, there was still the inside world of Ham and Noah and Shem and Japheth too. And within themselves, within themselves, this is the awful reality, they carried the seeds of their own destruction. Noah could have his Sabbath, right? 
but it wasn't the full Sabbath. There was still sin. There was still scorn. There was still mockery. There was still the, dis- the dishonor of his own son. And so, so much for the rest of Noah. There could be no rest for him there, for there was still scorn and laughter and mockery. At last, Noah had come into his rest in the new world, but the new world turned out to be, well, in need of something more. The system was rebooted, but it didn't just need to be rebooted, it it needed to be completely changed. At last, Noah could come into the new world, but he found that it still needed a better washing than the flood. There was something more to come. There was something better needed than a dove returning with an olive olive branch. They needed the Messiah, the anointed one himself, who would come to cleanse not just the outside world around us, but who would come to cleanse the inside, our own sinful hearts. The flood account ends with a big, not with a big, they all lived happily ever after, does it? It does not end with the Sabbath rest of God. Instead, we come to the end and we find it pointing us even further ahead. It ends with a son disgracing his father, but with two sons who honor him. And so it comes to Noah that he must rise up from his humiliation. He must be clothed again with the honor of Shem and Japheth. And Noah has to give a judgment, a judgment that looks back at what those two sons did, but also looks forward, looks forward to the time of real, true rest. Noah's saga, Noah's life comes to its close, not with sipping wine and taking it all in, but with a prophetic judgment. Ham will serve Shem, and Japheth will be enlarged inside the tents of Shem. And you, of course, know exactly what he's talking about. You just might not realize it. From Shem came Abraham, right? And in the course of time, there was David, and in the fullness of time, there was Jesus. And from Japheth come all the rest of the nations, and in the course of time, we would learn to call them Gentiles, and they would be your ancestors and my ancestors. And in the fullness of time, at the right time, they were called into the tents of Jesus. It's all so typical, isn't it? That's what I've been trying to tell you all through this Lenten season. And even here at the end, it's still typical. The end will, in fact, be a Sabbath rest, for there is a rest stored up for the people of God. And there is even wine that will be drunk freely, wine that will not intoxicate you but set you free, wine that will come from the greater Noah's labors, from the greater Noah's vineyard. Not from the slopes of Mount Ararat will we drink, but from the slopes of Calvary. The blood, not of a grape, but the blood of Christ himself will give us rest. Not just rest from our earthly labors, but rest from our sin and its dread illness. For in the blood of Jesus comes to us the forgiveness of sins. In his blood made wine comes sweet release, not from the cares and the worries and pains of this world, but from the fear of death itself. From the wine of Jesus comes the inebriating joy of victory, true victory over evil. And all of that is yours now, but also not yet. 
now and not yet. We live in that same tension. Christ's work of redemption is finished. The old age of sin, death, and hell have been vanquished. That's why we sing songs like we just sang this evening. But, but we also see all around us Ham and Canaan still at work. We see even within our own hearts the same things that were going on back then. Now we live by faith and only at the end will we have it all by sight. And so ours is the part to still play out the life of Shem and of Japheth. To not mock or scorn or laugh off or belittle or ignore or demean or look down on the one who is far greater than Noah. Do you see what I mean? Do you hear the call of the world all around you to laugh Jesus off? Don't care so much about him. What a joke all of that is. A crucified Messiah, a boring old church, who would want to be a part of any of that? Come with us, the world calls. Ham's prideful mockery still fills the air all around us, trying to lure us away from Jesus, trying to call us away from him, offering us some better promise, some other hope, some other dream, some other future. But who could be greater than our Noah, Jesus Christ? Who is more worthy of all of our honor and our gratitude and our obedience and our love and our respect and our praise than the one who saved us from the old world without the evils and also from the evils that are within us? Let us learn to walk like Shem and Japheth in complete humility in complete respect to our Lord Jesus, with all faith, with all trust, with all love, knowing that all of our blessings will come from him, that apart from him there is nothing but emptiness, there is nothing but futility, and that the day the, that day is not far off when he will rise up again. It's all so typical, after all, isn't it? The day will come when Christ will appear again, and he will be robed in dazzling glory, and then he will render a perfect judgment. He will give a perfect blessing to all those who love him. And that blessing of Jesus, here's the wonderful thing, that blessing of Jesus will not last for 350 years like Noah's life. That blessing of Jesus will go on forever and ever and ever. And then, then we will have what we now only see in part. Then, then we will be able to lift our glasses. We will be able to drink the wine that is without price. To Christ be the glory now and always. Amen.